Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fair Voice, Fair Voice's Fair Mormons podcast, and I am Hannah Sirak, your host. Today, we're just going to dive right into it. I'm getting to your questions. Don't worry. The question that I will answer next will be about the word of wisdom, but I really just want to dive into the podcast today, and today we have Valerie Hudson, and we're going to be talking about women and the priesthood and also Heavenly Mother, so let's just get right started today. What does the word God mean? Ah, well... That's a wonderful place to start. Um, the word God means an exalted man and an exalted woman married in the new and everlasting covenant. I think we have to understand that there is no divinity of the male without the divinity of the female. There is no divinity of the female without the divinity of the male. Uh, and, and with that starting point, you have a very different, I think, view of male-female relations, both on earth and in heaven. That's awesome. I totally agree with you on that. I think that when we understand God in that way, we're able to understand our own femininity more. What do you think we understand about Heavenly Mother? You know, what's really interesting is that people say, you know, we don't know anything about Heavenly Mother. You know, why is that? And I kind of want to say, well, we don't know anything about Heavenly Father. Why is that? Um, in fact, uh, Dallin H. Oaks gave a talk a couple of years ago in which he said, look, we don't know very much about Heavenly Father. Uh, and I think the same can be said about Heavenly Mother. The person we know the most about, of course, is our Savior, I think, uh, because we have records of his time here on earth. Um, but, I, you know, I think we know them through the laws they have given us. We know them through an understanding of the great plan of happiness. We, of course, understand them through prophecies and revelations that are given not just to the prophet of the church, but also to us as individuals in our stewardships. Yeah, I kind of feel like we probably know more than we let on about Heavenly Mother. Uh, Certainly, I think her daughters, who in a sense are her apprentices, right? I mean, supposedly we women are in training to become heavenly mothers one day. Uh, I think that she speaks to us through our bodies and through the experiences of the kinds of roles that she herself has as a wife, as a mother, uh, and and so forth. So... um, yeah, I think there, there are lines of communication, uh, though sometimes perhaps we may overlook those. That's a really unique perspective. I appreciate that a lot. What do you think divine femininity is and what is unique about women? Oh, I, you know, I'm not going to touch that one with a 10-foot pole. And let me tell you why. Is because I think... Uh, you know, deep inside um, that whenever somebody, and it's usually a male somebody, tells me that women are like X. I I think of all the examples of women that I know that aren't X, (laughs) and I also think of how much more women are than X. Does that make any sense? So while I do believe that there are some very sex-specific roles in the great plan of happiness and also in the eternities, uh, there is obviously a distinction between a mother role and a father role, though I think there's a lot of overlap. Um, I also believe that we, 
we mix it too much up with our current 2021 American understanding of gender roles. Uh, and I think every, um, every century, every age falls prey to that very same tendency to say, well, you know, whatever we think women's roles are or men's roles are, you know, in this period of time, you know, is, is the way they are in heaven. And, you know, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Definitely, I think mother and, and everything that motherhood entails is going to be present in the eternities. Um, but are we going to have things like the difficulty that mothers here in America have contributing their talents and their wisdom to society while taking care of children? No, I don't think we're going to have that problem in heaven. Uh, and, and, and so I'm a little reluctant to say, aside what we see, say, in the proclamation on the family, um, I'm reluctant to bring in any sort of uh, gender roles, aside from sex-specific forms of reproduction. I think that's a really good perspective to have, especially because I do think you're right. When we approach topics like this, we do have a tendency to kind of make God in our own image, if that makes sense, and impute our politics and our current understanding of um, political systems onto doctrine, um, which isn't necessarily the best approach to have when we can just, you know, go through the wonderful exploration of what exactly the family proclamation says about women and what the scriptures say about women, which I find very empowering. Can you, so you have done a lot of work on um, the two trees. Can you outline what you mean when you compare two types of people to the two trees? Oh, sure. I'll, uh, I'll do my best shot to give you the Reader's Digest version, but I do refer listeners to the full essay, um, which can be found on the Square Two website um, in the journal issues uh, tab. Just search for two trees. But the, um, the idea of the two trees is that I think up until very recently um, that um, members of our own faith community were falling prey, if you will, um, to, to some of, I, I think, the erroneous beliefs of larger Christianity. Um, and it's really been with the help, I think, of our prophets, seers, and revelators, such as um, President Dallin H. Oaks, who gave that incredible talk about Mother Eve years ago, uh, and others, uh, where we begin to, to, to pull sort of the, 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 the canvas covering of these erroneous beliefs away from the Garden of Eden story. Um, so for, you know, one of the first things is that, um, you know, when God decides that we're ready to start the great plan of happiness, he creates a garden, two trees, and he puts two people in the garden with the two trees. Uh, and the very fact that we've got two trees and two people seems to indicate that perhaps these people have stewardship over the trees. And indeed, you know, the restored gospel sort of suggests that that's true. Um, the, this, the ordinances of salvation and exaltation, such as baptisms and sealings and so forth, which we might consider to be the fruit of the tree of life, um, those are administered by uh, male officers of the priesthood. Uh, and so I think it, 
we begin to say, well, is there some sort of stewardship connected with the first tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or as, as I would call it, the tree of wisdom, the tree of Sophia. And I think there is, there absolutely is. And I think it's made plain in the Garden of Eden story where none of the action can start uh, until Eve arrives on the scene. It's almost as if um, uh, this sequence of events, the fact that Adam is created first and then has to wait around for Eve to arrive before anything happens suggests that he was not foreordained to have stewardship over the first tree, the tree of wisdom. Now, when Eve arrives, then um, that's when uh, uh, through uh, you know, great wrestling and, and trying to understand and, and trying to get a glimpse of what the plan of happiness was, even though she's now behind a veil, uh, I think it's important that we realize what, um, what is happening here with the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It is this fruit by which immortal beings enter into mortality. It is through this fruit that the light of Christ is kindled within the breast of each mortal being. Uh, it is through this fruit that we enter into full material agency. Um, and it is through this fruit that we are pointed in the direction of the difference between good and evil, which the light of Christ shows us. And we learn to love the good and eschew the evil. And these things, I believe, are very much the ordinances of the priestesshood. Um, these are the ordinances over which the daughters of God preside. Uh, and that is bringing every soul into mortality, awakening within that soul, the light of Christ and pointing that soul towards the good. And I believe pregnancy, childbirth, lactation and general mothering are in fact ordinances, ordinances of the priestesshood. You'll notice that even Adam had to receive those ordinances. He had to receive the fruit of the first tree from Eve. The savior himself had to receive the ordinances of the priestesshood from a daughter of Eve, Mary. Uh, and so I think this gives us a much greater understanding that there were two people, two trees, two stewardships, two hearkenings, Adam hearkening to Eve, Eve hearkening to Adam, two gifts given, two gifts received. And when we see all of that, then I think we see that the plan of happiness is this amazing plan of equality and interdependence and partnership uh, between men and women. Uh, and, and that I think is one of the great pearls of great price of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. I love that beautiful explanation. And I do encourage you to go on to square too and read the entire essay. I've read it a few times and I just think it's a very, very articulate and beautiful positioning of women. So this kind of gets into something that I would like to talk about too. So 
what do you think then the true meaning of the patriarchal order is? We talk a lot about patriarchy in the church. There's some positive takes, there's some negative takes, but I would love to hear what you think it means for us to have a patriarchal order. Oh, thank you for that question. Yeah, that's what I call one of those three P issues, priesthood, polygamy, and patriarchal order, um, which I think uh, have caused a lot of really unnecessary grief and sorrow and mischief uh, in the world. Um, what's interesting is that uh, in a sense, of course, the priestesshood is passed down from mother to daughter. Uh, every woman is actually born um, with, with all of her, um, her potential children with her at the time of her birth. Um, however, uh, young men uh, do not have the capacity to become fathers until they reach puberty. And it is at that point, of course, that they are ordained to um, uh, the priesthood uh, and anciently, as explained by President Ezra Taft Benson, this was from father to son, that uh, every father would lay his hands upon his sons and ordain them to the priesthood uh, when they got to that particular point in their, their lives. Uh, and so President Benson explains that that is, is why uh, we, we call um, the, the, the new and everlasting covenant of marriage, uh, what that new and everlasting covenant of marriage brings about, right? We call it the patriarchal order because it's uh, the priesthood is passed down from father to son. But he says what it really means is the form of governance that Adam and Eve developed, right? Which is the diarchy the equal ruling of the patriarch and the matriarch in the family order of government. And certainly we know that heaven is based not on nation states or parliaments, but the family order of government is based on fathers and mothers. Uh, and, and so I, I think, you know, we, we oftentimes define the word patriarchy in the sense of the word that it's used in the fallen world. And in the fallen world, patriarchy means men rule over women. Um, but what the patriarchal order creates is actually 180 degrees different from that. It creates an order of radical equality now, by equality, I don't mean identity. I don't mean that husbands and wives are the same, but that they stand before each other as absolute equals, and they stand before God as absolute equals in God's eyes. Uh, and so it's unfortunate that the term patriarchal order, right, really uh, should probably be called the family order of government as established in the eternities by our heavenly parents. I agree. And I do definitely think that the way that, I guess, I don't want to say the world defines terms can sometimes mold our understanding. And then we can take in these secular assumptions and bring them in to, to masquerade a really beautiful concept that you articulated quite well that resonates with me a lot. Um, so my next question for you would be, what is the forward ordination of Eve and what would that mean for women? 
Yes, well, I think that women and men have um, roles that really, really do overlap in the plan of happiness, but I do think that there are some separate roles. Um, and it's because we need to need each other. Why do we need to need each other? Because I think self-love never creates anything. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so happy that the missionaries knocked on my family's door 50 years ago is because um, otherwise I would have been left with a conception of God as an old bachelor. And I don't believe that old bachelors or old bachelorettes can create anything. I don't believe that a single solitary self can create anything because creation is an act of love. Uh, and without there being love, there can be no fountain of life. There can be no creation. And so it is impossible to have God without there being uh, an exalted man and an exalted woman who love each other and are committed to each other forever. That is the wellspring of all creation in our universe, is the love that our heavenly parents have for one another. And so I am very grateful that that pattern is recreated in the lives of their children, which is men need women and women need men. Uh, and so while our, our, uh, what we do on a day-to-day -day basis to build the kingdom of God and build our families overlaps quite a bit, there are still, still some sex-specific things. Men can't do certain things. Women can't do certain things. The fruits of the tree of life and the fruit of the tree of wisdom cannot be given um, uh, by the other sex. Uh, and so I rejoice uh, in that. Um, and so I, I think when we're talking about um, the divine feminine uh, and the gifts that, that women give, uh, I think uh, we're giving the, the gifts of the priestesshood. We are giving mothering and mothering can be biological. In fact, I think biological mothering is one of the most exquisite expressions of the divine feminine. But even if one were a woman and were not to have children in this life or were not to be married in this life, um, we know that mothering is a more powerful force um, than simple biological mothering. Uh, there is this in, you know, I, I, I want to refer to actually a children's book that my uh, daughter uh, was reading to me last night. It's one of our favorite books and it's called Luba. And it's the story of uh, a Polish Jewish woman named Luba who was sent to uh, the concentration camp at Bergen-Belsen. And uh, her husband had been killed. Her child had been ripped from her arms. She was all alone in Bergen-Belsen in the big barracks with all the other women without any family at all though. And outside in the cold, she heard whimpers and she discovered 54 little children ranging in age from two until I think 12. And she and the other women took them into their barracks and kept them alive for over two years, uh, even though everyone in the camp was starving. These women did their all to make sure that these children 
we're not only fed, but we're cared for, their, their hair brushed, their diapers changed. And by the end of the war, by the time Bergen-Belsen was liberated, 52 of the 54 children were still alive. So while I'm not sure I can express eloquently in prose, what I'm saying to you is there is a, an incredible power from mothering. Uh, now, she did not give birth to any of those 54 children, but she was their mother. And that came with it, I think, a very great power that we overlook and we dismiss and uh, we, we downgrade uh, in our society and sometimes even within our faith community. And it's time for that to change. I totally agree. I love what you said there. I love the story that you referenced too. I do think we need to follow the example of Elder Holland who provides a very expanded definition of mothering that I think is beautiful, inclusive, and true. Um, so I'd also like to know what stewardship do you think that women have versus what stewardship do you think that men have? Uh, well, here, I think I would again reference kind of the story of the Garden of Eden, right, is that while, yes, we work with men, right, in many, many ways, we work with them at the family level, at the community level, at the nation level, at the international level, uh, in trying to make our societies better, it is also true that men have the stewardship to offer the ordinances of the priesthood, the ordinances of salvation and exaltation to all God's children who are worthy. And we know that women have stewardship over the first tree, the tree of wisdom, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so if any spirit makes it down to the planet, they are making it down to the planet through an ordinance that is provided by uh, the daughters of our heavenly parents uh, and mothering and the light of Christ. All of these things I think are, um, are gifts that are given by, uh, by women. They are the ordinances of the first tree. So I do believe there are some sex-specific ordinances. I totally agree with that. And I think that that is a good way to approach femininity too. Oftentimes when we talk about priesthood power with women, one of the common questions that I have asked myself and that I hear my fellow sisters asking themselves is how can women better understand their priesthood power and how can women access that priesthood power? Well, I would call it, of course, priestesshood power. <laughs> I believe that men have priesthood power. We've been reluctant to say that women have priestesshood power, but they do. And that is, uh, it seems to me it comes in two forms. Uh, in the uh, handbook of administration, right? It defines uh, priesthood as the authority to uh, act in the name of heavenly father. And I think priestesshood, of course, is the authority to act in the name of Heavenly Mother. And so we women have the authority to act in the name of Heavenly Mother. Uh, and uh, I believe that heaven, for example, always listens to the prayers of mothers and gives them special consideration. And I think other powers are given to mothers as well. Powers of intuition, powers, there are just 
innumerable powers that I think uh, women have. Uh, you know, for, and there may even be a biological basis for those. I mean, every time you get pregnant with a child, that child's cells will remain in your body forever. Some of their cells will remain in your body forever. And some of your cells will remain in their body forever. So in a strange way, um, there's this micro uh, chimerism that exists within both baby and mother as the result of pregnancy. So in a sense, all of my children are always with me in my own body. And I am with my children in each of their bodies as well. What a fascinating concept that is. Uh, so I, I do believe that there is an incredible power uh, that is given to women. And I believe that we already know that. If you ask any 10 members of the church who the most spiritual figure in their life has been, I guarantee you that an overwhelming majority of them will say that it's their mother. Why is it then that we do not think that women have power from heaven? I mean, the thought makes reason stare. We acknowledge it. We acknowledge that sometimes the most powerful spiritual influence in our lives has been our mother. And yet we somehow have to ask whether she has divine power. Of course, she's got divine power. It is her birthright as a daughter of God. I love that answer. I thought that was very beautiful and very articulate. One of the things that often comes up when we talk about priestess power, priestesshood power, and Heavenly Mother is this sort of question about like where the line is and without expecting changes in doctrine, how do you envision local priesthood leaders to be more actively including women in ward and stake uh, leadership? I think it's already happening. And I think one day it will be possible to acknowledge that women have the priestesshood that day's coming, I am sure of it, because all of our doctrine points to it. But um, they're already changing it. You know, the state priesthood leadership council is now just the state leadership council and women leaders are invited to it. I, I think we're realizing that you can't run a family um, or a ward family or a stake family without a hierarchical government that is um, you know, women and men participating as equals in the governing uh, of, these, um, of these collectives of uh, God's children. Uh, and even the, the councils of the, uh, you know, of the highest levels of the church are being renamed uh, and women are being included. So I think this, this diarchy, right? We really are seeing this diarchy begin to come forth uh, in, our, um, in the leadership, uh, in, in church leadership. Uh, and I think, um, you know, at some point, I believe, you know, in the ninth article faith that there will be further light and knowledge given to us uh, about how relations between the sexes uh, are in heaven. And I, uh, as, as our people prepare for that day, I know that heaven is itching to give it to us. <laughs> because remember, before the Savior can come again, there has to be a people on the earth um, that are living 
uh, a more or less Zion type existence. And certainly there will never be a people that lives a Zion type existence unless they eradicate any notion that women are somehow inferior to men. Um, only a society that has elevated women to a position of equality with men is uh, going to be acceptable to heaven in the end times. That's really true. I like the equality and complementarity too. I think that that's such a beautiful component of it. And it goes back to that idea that God is both heavenly father and heavenly mother. So this is a question that I think is really important to ask. How would you answer the question, why don't women hold the priesthood in the church? That's a question that I think has been on a lot of people's minds since the ordained women movement and in preceding that too. So how would you go about answering that question, which we've talked a lot about so far, but I'd like to have like a succinct answer to this particular question. Well, they don't hold the priesthood because they hold the priestesshood. That's the short and succinct answer is that they've always had it. They have always had the priestesshood and the priestesshood is equal in power to the priesthood. I love that. What actions can individual women take to more proactively call upon priesthood power of God in our lives as church leaders have told us without ordination? Well, we probably were ordained in the pre-mortal existence to come to this earth as heavenly mother's apprentices. So I believe there was an ordination, but it didn't happen in this life. It happened in the life before we came. Don't you find it interesting that if we look at global population figures over the millennia, that there's always have been more men born on the planet earth than women, all right? The, the natural sex ratio of human births is about 106 boy babies born for every 100 girl babies. Isn't it interesting to consider that uh, in fact, the rarer sex is the female sex. It is not the male sex. Uh, and so I kind of feel that we have really overlooked the fact that it probably took uh, a lot of training, a lot of, of education, a lot of spiritual growth to qualify to become a daughter of Eve. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think we should think of ourselves as beings who were foreordained to hold the priesthood. We were worthy. We proved ourselves worthy to hold the priesthood. And we have come to this planet with the full blessing and confidence of our heavenly mother that we could follow in her footsteps. And that every feeling that we have felt as women has been felt by our heavenly mother and that she can support us through all the trials and all the afflictions that we might pass through in this life. Uh, you know, in times in my life, I remember once um, being in labor, I do natural childbirth. So um, being in a very painful labor with one of my children and uh, just saying, oh, you know, Heavenly Mother, what do I do? And actually getting impressions as to how to move my body and what positions to take that would lessen the pain. I actually felt 
the presence of female spirits guiding me almost as midwives in trying to help me have a less painful birth. I remember also uh, having to pray about uh, one of my children who was just diagnosed with a serious genetic disease when he was uh, but a, a, you know, less than a year old and feeling again, um, not just the support of my heavenly father, but the support of my heavenly mother, giving me special insight into what sorts of specific things that I could do for him as a baby through my mothering that would make a, a difference in his life. So I think what we really lack is the confidence and the consciousness of our powerfulness. And uh, if, if I were to exhort women to do anything, I would ask them to seek out and understand and gain that confidence and that consciousness that being a daughter of our heavenly mother brings with it great power. That's, I loved the experiences that you shared. That's so cool. And I think that we need more experiences like that shared so people can understand that women do have access to heavenly power in a very strong and profound way. How do you believe the church's teachings about heavenly mother fit into questions about the relationship between women and the priesthood? Oh, well, I, you know, I think that's pretty straightforward, um, which is that if we have a heavenly mother, She's divine and she has divine power. She's a being of power. She's a being of love. Uh, and, and so are we. Um, we also have a hood of authority. We have the priestesshood and we are beings of power here on earth and power that will be given to us by heaven for righteous purposes. I also think it's really important to understand how, um, you know, current issues of the day about um, sexuality, same-sex marriage, and other sorts of things are really transformed when you believe that there is a heavenly mother. And um, it's pretty hard to defend what some have called the natural family, right? A heterosexual family, a monogamous heterosexual family. If you believe that the heavenly family is an old bachelor who somehow has a son, <laughs> all male, no marriage, no females, zip. You know, it's really hard. How do you defend the so-called natural family uh, if heaven's family looks so egregiously unnatural? How do you even defend marriage itself? We know that, you know, the United States has been called a post-marriage society. If you don't have a belief that Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother are married and, and they want us to follow in their footsteps. So I, I think it's actually been um, a mistake to so bury Heavenly Mother in our theology for so long, because I think it, it left us without sort of the strongest defense for some of our beliefs about sexuality and gender issues in the modern day. 
um, and and I, I believe that we're we're beginning to see the error of that, and I think that we're um, we're bringing her back into the light. And when we do, the fact that she exists makes all the difference in the world to our our understandings and our justifications for our positions on these controversial issues. Regarding Heavenly Mother, one question that I, that I have too, um, we're often, when, when we talk about Heavenly Mother culturally, I think we often say things like, we shouldn't talk about her at all because she's too sacred. Does that have any basis to you? What are your thoughts about that? Well, I think that's a myth that's been really ably um, debunked. Um, you know, I think that uh, David Paulson who recently passed away, um, was a, a religion professor at BYU, did a thorough study with one of his graduate students. Uh, and in nowhere do the general authorities tell us not to talk about Heavenly Mother. Furthermore, I think it's really strange. Again, take your average 10 members of the church and ask them um, how often they talk to their mother. Some of my students talk to their mothers two or three times a day. Uh, and even uh, the older students at least talk to their mothers once a week at a minimum. And yet somehow we're to believe that Heavenly Mother doesn't want to be in communication with us or, or, or that it's somehow inappropriate to seek communication with her. Again, I just think that's silly. I mean, uh, look at how we live our lives in this world. Our mothers, uh, you know, barring any, you know, anomalies are, are absolutely part of the people that we talk to on a regular basis, maybe even daily. So I think this, is, this all stems from um, some, you know, the, the, the fact that in olden days, it was a very patriarchal view. And here I'm using patriarchal in the, in the fallen sense of the word, that women and children were to be seen and not heard. And I, I think it's uh, long past time that we moved um, beyond um, such erroneous conceptions of, of whether our heavenly mother would want to be in contact with us or not. When we talk about communication with Heavenly Mother, could you clarify what you mean by that? You said that, you know, um, we don't pray to Heavenly Mother because when Jesus offered his prayer, he addressed it solely to Heavenly Father. And, you know, I can respect that until we have further light and knowledge. I'm not going to go around and pray to Heavenly Mother. But I always say, dear Heavenly Father, and I know Heavenly Mother is right there with you. So please have her listen in. <laughs> yeah i think that's an important clarification i just wanted to make sure that our, our audience understood that like we still don't pray to heavenly mother because we have not been given that light and knowledge um but that i, I do believe you know that heavenly mother is there you know with heavenly father because where else would she be you know right and i think it's interesting to think of how um let, let me try to articulate one of the reasons I think we were asked to pray to Heavenly Father is that um, when we think about, you know, the world, right, we know that this is a fallen world. And I've often wondered whether part of the stewardship of the priesthood is to deal with 
the fallen worlds. And that there is an all-male presidency, just as one has an all-male presidency over the church in the fallen world. Um, that uh, it's right and proper that there be kind of a male presidency for this earth, this fallen world. Uh, and that I think it's quite possible that, uh, and here this is, you know, just complete speculation, that it may be, you know, Heavenly Mother that and presides over um, what we might call the world that is not yet in being. Um, so the worlds that are being organized, the spirits that are being organized and so forth. I wouldn't be surprised if there isn't an all female presidency over those kinds of worlds. So in, if that were to be the case, then it would make sense that you would pray to Heavenly Father because you know, he's the one who, who presides over the fallen worlds. But I don't think once we get back to heaven that somehow we will need to go through Heavenly Father to talk to our Heavenly Mother. I, I think they'll be present with us. Assuming we, we make it. <laughs> yeah, assuming we make it. I, I, I hope we do. I really do. Um, so you've spoken before about how Eve's choice to eat the fruit and bring children into the world parallels men's priesthood responsibilities to help us return home. How can we encourage this view within church culture without falling into the trap of acting like church priesthood leadership and motherhood are the same thing? Well, they're clearly not the same thing. I can assure you that pushing a child out of your, you know, uh, cervix is not the same as dunking someone in a baptismal font. I mean, there's just, I don't see how anyone could assert that these ordinances are the same. I think they're very, very, very different. Uh, and certainly the experiences of the ordinance givers are different and the experience of the ordinance receivers is different. But what I, I would insist is that the word equality doesn't mean identity, right? Um, just because you have two men, right, doesn't mean that they're identical, even though they're both men. Um, so I think this, this strange tendency to say that something that's equal must be the same is really, really wrong. And I think one of the, the, the best uh, exponents of that was, was it Elder... I think it was Elder Elton Perry, but I could be wrong, who kept talking about how, um, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a grand orchestra, right? It's not just composed of all piccolos, right? That certainly would not magnify creation to have an orchestra of all piccolos, that people have to be different. And yet the piccolo is, as important an instrument in the orchestra as the French horn, right? So why is it so difficult for people to say men and women are equal? They're not identical, but they're equal. And uh, you can't say that the, the ordinances of the first tree are somehow inferior to the ordinances of the second tree. You can't say the ordinances of the second tree are superior to the ordinances of the first tree. That doesn't make any sense. So I think if we can all agree that, that equality um, doesn't mean identity, but it means equal respect, it means equal power, it means equal wisdom, equal virtue, all sorts of things uh, that 
that two different beings could be equal in, then we would have much, much healthier discussions about this in the church. That's a really good point. And I, I do think that we need to have those healthy discussions and also remember what makes us unique and what makes us special and celebrate that too. Not be ashamed that we aren't the same, but be excited and celebrate the partnerships that we can have because those make us more like God. I'd like right. to yeah. celebrate that we're not the same, right? We should right. celebrate that we're not the same. But we should never use the fact that we're not the same to introduce a hierarchy. Oh, I totally agree. And I think that's what's meant by diversity within unity. I agree. My last question for you is sort of a more personal flair question. Could you please describe the best experience that you've had as a woman in the church and then close by bearing your testimony? The time that you felt like you realized your feminine potential the most while being in the church. As far as the church is concerned, I, th I think the, the most important turning point for me was when in the 1990s, um, I, with one of my um, male um, colleagues, Alma Don Sorensen, decided to strip away the barnacles from um, the theology of the church and sort through and get past some of the old teachings of the church that were just obviously wrong concerning women and to really do a deep dive into what the theology of the church about women was. And so we wrote a book called Women in Eternity, Women of Zion, which is still in print. Uh, and I really think it was the most healing and wonderful thing. Because once I knew what the theology actually was and what teachings were not theology, in fact, many times contradicted the theology of the church, uh, I was a free woman. Uh, I felt completely whole. I felt completely confident and completely understanding uh, of my equality in the church. Uh, and so those old P questions of priesthood and polygamy and patriarchal order, they were all gone. So that I think, and I think it was very telling that it was the work of a man and a woman jointly to try to sort through uh, all the erroneous beliefs and teachings and really understand the theology of uh, the sexes, if you will, uh, was probably the most wonderful thing um, that's happened in the church. And I'd like to give credit to Alma Don Sorensen. He died just last week, um, but he was a great man. And I think he has given um, all of us an incredible legacy, a man who was ahead of his time in understanding the, the necessity of gender equality uh, as the foundation of, of all good and the foundation of heaven itself. And so, yeah, I would, I would absolutely be honored to end with my testimony, which is that I know with every molecule of my being 
that the restored gospel of Jesus Christ is true. And it is healing. It is the balm in Gilead. It is the good news for women. In fact, the most feminist act one could commit would be to share the restored gospel of Jesus Christ with others. I am grateful to my savior for his fulfilling of the promises that he made, not only to the men, but to the women, to his sisters, um, fulfilling of all of those promises. And I think it was right and proper that the first person that the resurrected Lord showed himself to was a daughter of Eve here on earth, playing the mother Eve in the Garden of Eden. And I am grateful for the blessings of all of the ordinances of the priestesshood and the ordinances of the priesthood that I and my family have been privileged to receive in the great plan of happiness. And I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.